Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation today with a message entitled, Worthy is the Lamb. So turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Have you ever wondered what life and the world would look like if it had no purpose? See, I know there are many people, especially among those who have embraced the philosophy of evolution, that all of life is a series of random chance events. And if that's so, the earth and all life and your life itself is simply a matter of, well, dumb luck, which in the end amounts to nothing. I used to teach a course entitled Christianity and Contemporary Thought, and in it, I used to invite an atheist friend who taught evolution to come and lecture for one class. I'll never forget what he said to my class. He said, if the world were to explode in a nuclear holocaust tomorrow, and so all life would forever be extinguished, there would be no one to watch and no one to care. See, I can't imagine a more hopeless and meaningless thing to say. In response, I would say, if your philosophy of evolution is true, there is no authoritative source to verify it, and it really doesn't matter at all. All life and all philosophy and everything you call truth is just meaningless and purposeless and chance. In your world, truth doesn't exist. See, there's something that God has built inside every human being that simply rebels at that thought. It was Augustine who taught that for Christians— All history is linear. It has a point of origin, and it's moving towards a point of resolution and fulfillment. And for this reason, not only does the world make sense, but so do our individual lives. We have meaning, and my experiences, including my joys and sorrows and successes and failures and my suffering as well, all of that has purpose. And when a Christian dies, we speak about things like glorification and the fulfillment of the purpose of our lives and for our existence. So we've been studying the book of Revelation, and we've come to chapter 5, a chapter that's essential to understanding the entire book. Up till now, John has indicated that he was exiled on the Greek island of Patmos for preaching the word of the testimony of Jesus. In that place, the risen Christ has appeared to him and explains to him the things that must soon take place, that is, future events. And with that, Jesus speaks to seven churches, churches that are facing persecution and intense pressure to abandon Jesus. The number seven is significant in Revelation, and so it either refers to perfection or to completion— And so even though these churches are real churches in history, the message given to them is supposed to be applied to all God's people at all times. Jesus has something to say to us as we struggle to hold fast to him and not cave into this evil age. And with that, John is taken into heaven. And there he sees the one who is seated on the throne, indicating to John that the one on the throne is perfectly able to handle all the struggles of his church. And with that, we come to Revelation chapter 5, and I'm reading the first five verses. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, as we approach this Bible text, we we should be struck by how important this scroll is. So much so that when John says that no one could be found to open the scroll, that he begins to weep, and not just quietly, but loudly. His grief is excessive. It seems that the scroll is so significant that a failure to open it and to read it would leave not only John, but I would argue would lead the entire earth to come to the conclusion that there is no purpose. And so before we go any further, we must identify what this scroll is. Let's start by observing that at the time of the writing of Revelation, there were no books as, you know, as we know them today. That is, paper sheets piled onto each other, bound on one side, and opened on the other. See, books as we know them today, or codexes, had not yet been invented. In the ancient world of John, all writing was done on scrolls, in which there would have been a column of writing followed by another column, all attached in a linear fashion, and then rolled up for storage. And so when we read Revelation 20, verse 12, where we read, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. We shouldn't think of that as a modern book. We should think of it in terms of a scroll. And so as we read through Revelation, it should become apparent that there are a number of books in it that we encounter. There's a book which records the deeds of every individual, every thought, every action of every human being in this life. This is the book from which all are judged when they stand before the throne of God. And there is a book called the Book of Life, in which are recorded those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And there is this scroll. See, what's fascinating about this scroll in chapter 5 is that John describes it as a scroll on which there's writing on both sides of the page. See, that would immediately signal something to an ancient reader. See, most scrolls only had writing on one side, and indeed, almost all public documents to be read for official purposes would only have writing on one side. But occasionally, private correspondence or private documents would have writing on both sides. Now, that's especially true when it comes to last wills and testaments. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Now, next we learn that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, if this had been a modern book, we might think of breaking open a seal and then reading, let's say, chapter one, and then we'd break the next seal and then we'd read chapter two. But that's not how an ancient scroll worked. You'd never have seals on the inside of a scroll. All the seals would be attached to the outside of the scroll, sealed on the outside edge. So, in fact, you wouldn't be able to read anything at all unless all the seals were broken. Now, we might wonder why there are seven seals then. Now, if you think about it, if a king sent a letter to someone, he would roll up the letter in a scroll and then he would place a wax seal on it. And then before the seal would harden, he would place his imprint into the wax with a special tool or even from his own ring, and it would be unique to him. And so if the seal was broken before it was given to the intended recipient, the receiver would not trust the message, for he would know that the scroll had been tampered with. No one was permitted to break a seal unless it was the person who had been properly authorized to do so. And in the case of the scroll in Revelation 5, we notice that it has seven seals. And that gets me back to the last will and testament. 
Usually, a will would require seven witnesses. And so each witness to the will would properly authorize the will as authentic and would then attach their own unique seal to it. And so the series of seals on the top of the scroll would testify that the contents were authentic and that they were witnessed to be authentic by genuine witnesses. Now, for our purposes, we need to imagine that scene. Later on in chapter 6 and 7, we will witness the breaking of the seven seals. And, and those who don't understand ancient seals will think that with the breaking of each seal, a certain portion of the scroll is revealed, but that's really not the case. In other words, when the seals are broken one at a time, starting in chapter 6, the events that follow the breaking of the seal is not the contents of the book. You can't get to the content until all seven seals are broken, which means that the drama of Revelation is moving ever closer to the time in which this book is going to be open, and the convulsing of the earth tells us that the time for the reading of the book is almost upon us. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but the point I'm trying to make is that Revelation 5 simply opens the door to the drama of the entire book of Revelation. A great scroll is produced containing seven seals, and the point is that the scroll is written by God and that the contents of what God has written, that is, the breaking of the seals, can't be done except by an officially authorized person. And at first, John weeps loudly, and we suspect it's almost despair because no one is found who is worthy to break the seals of the book. But that's the drama. But again, we come back to the principal question. What is this scroll? See, at this point in time, I want to jump ahead and give the contents of the scroll. The scroll represents the fulfillment of all of history. The scroll is what the Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord. The scroll contains the prophecy of end-time events, including the salvation of God's people and the judgment of the wicked. It's God's plan of redemption. It's the fulfillment of His purposes for human history. This is the overthrow of evil. This is the consummation of the kingdom of God and the redemption of his people. This scroll is the purpose of all of history. The Celebration Caribbean Cruise is scheduled for February 2018. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, great musical guests in the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team on board the Royal Caribbean's Freedom of the Seas. It's a five-day journey to some of the most beautiful and exotic islands and locations. Enjoy everything the cruise has to offer, along with inspirational Bible teaching, worship, fellowship, encouragement, and laughter. This is a vacation event for the entire family that you won't want to miss. So make plans today and call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca for all the cruise details. Space is limited, so don't be disappointed and book now. And just as an added reminder, all ministry vacation events are paid for by the participants and no ministry resources are used for this purpose. If this world is to have purpose in which God's kingdom triumphs over Satan, over the Roman oppression of the church, over the great forces of darkness that cause unrighteousness to flourish, unless this scroll is opened, history is not going to reach its climax and the world and our lives will remain meaningless. 
Unless this book is opened, all remains meaningless. I wonder if you've ever wondered whether life is meaning. You know, you might be a Christian and and you might be facing hardship and in your quietest moments of doubt, you've wondered if there really was a plan. And if you face those moments of despair, you're going to understand why it is that John weeps when he thinks that there is no one who can break the seals and open this book. John knows what's at stake. And when we think about it, we can see it instantly as well. Everything is at stake with the question, who is worthy to break the seals and open the book that sees God's kingdom fulfilled among us? And so John, thinking that no one is worthy of breaking the seals, begins to weep loudly. And as he does, he's instantly comforted by one of the 24 elders. He's told to weep no more. Now, at this point, the elder could have said, Jesus is worthy. But even though we know he's referring to Jesus, he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. See, the image, therefore, is an image of a great battle that Jesus has won. And in consequence of winning that battle, this scroll can be opened. Now, before we ask what battle Jesus has won, we do well to examine the two titles that this elder gives to Jesus. The first is the title, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a reference to Genesis 49, 9 to 10. You know, in that passage, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he's surrounded by his 12 sons. He has a word of blessing for each of his sons. And if you know that passage, not every son is blessed. Some are strongly rebuked. But as Jacob comes to his third son, his word of blessing for Judah far exceeds his blessing for any of his other sons. He says specifically to Judah, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. See, the imagery of comparing Judah to first a lion's cub and then growing to become a lion that feeds on the praise, an an image of a mighty champion who rules over everything. See, even as the lion is the king of the beast, so Judah will gradually rise to become king over others. And then in order to emphasize the kingly nature of Judah's reign, he promises him that Judah's conquering seed is going to inherit a scepter. See, a scepter is a staff of a king, and according to Jacob, once Judah's seed triumphs, he inherits a scepter that he will never relinquish. That is, his victory over his enemies is so absolute and final that his kingdom will never end. But there's more. According to Jacob, the extent of his kingdom is so absolute that the obedience of all the peoples will be under his control. Now, the rest of the New Testament makes this very point. According to Paul in Colossians 2.15, when Jesus died for our sins and canceled our debt against God, in that act, says Paul, Jesus triumphed over Satan and his realm by shaming them and taking away all of Satan's captives. And so we might say that Jacob's prophecy about Judah's descendant was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. Once Jesus died, The course of world history is set. Satan and evil have been decisively been defeated and Jesus reigns. Think of it like the beaches of Normandy in World War II. Once the Allies had taken Normandy, the war wasn't in fact over, and yet the outcome of the war is settled. No matter how the Nazis would fight, their final defeat was now certain. And that's exactly what's implied in the title, Lion of the Tribe of Judah. 
Jesus will ultimately triumph. But there's a second title, Root of David. And of course, David was Israel's great king who came from the tribe of Judah. But David's kingdom set the stage for the kingdom over Israel and also set the stage that the Messiah would rule over David's throne. So in Isaiah 11, verse 1, we read a remarkable prophecy. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now, as we know, Jesse is the father of King David. The prophecy is that the kingdom of David is likened to a tree that's cut down and only a stump remains. But as is sometimes the case, from a cut down tree, a shoot grows up, and that's the idea. According to Isaiah, the shoot that grows up will bear fruit. Now, later on, the same passage in verse 4, Isaiah explains what he has in mind. He says, with righteousness, he, that is the Messiah, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. See, that verse really summarizes what the entire Old Testament teaches about the Messiah, the king, the Lion of Judah, the one that will come from the Davidic kings. That kingdom will be cut off at some point in time, but out of the ruins of David's fallen kingdom, the Messiah will grow forth. He's the root of David. This mighty king will destroy all evil and deliver God's people and with the breath of his mouth will destroy evil. So we go a little further in Isaiah 11, all the way through to verse 9 and verse 10, we see what Isaiah is getting at. He says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, to him the nations will inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, I know that's all a mouthful. But when the elder in Revelation is calling Jesus the root of David, he's talking about Isaiah 11. The victory of the Messiah, says Isaiah, will be so complete that the earth will be so full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is to say, there will not be one square centimeter of space on this earth that will not fully reflect back the God who created it. And in that day, when the Messiah reigns, his resting place, that is, the place where he lives, will be glorious, and all the peoples of the earth will go towards it. Now, by his death on the cross, as the analogy of the beaches of Normandy provided us, the process has begun. Listen to what Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, even the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so we see a picture of Christ as a great conqueror who defeats Satan and also therefore delivers a group of people who are now delivered by him and are freed by him. And so having won the victory, the Lion of Judah and the Root of David has the authority over all the host of darkness. His victory is a conquest over death. It's a conquest over those who are the elect of God. His victory paves the way for the plan of God to fully consummate the kingdom of God. And so in heaven, a scroll is presented, the consummation of history, the time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The word goes out. Who has the authority? Who is worthy to break the seals and open this book and bring about the end of history? And the word goes out, no one has but this one, Jesus. 
That is, no king, no prophet, no holy man, no philosopher, no military mighty man, no government forces can bring history to its intended goal. For the persecuted seven churches of Revelation, they should know that the Roman Empire is not the goal of history. You know, in our day, it was Karl Marx that thought that communism was the goal of history. But all of that's just untrue. This one, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, this one alone can break the seals and bring history to its climax. He alone is worthy. And for us who sometimes struggle with questions of meaning and and purpose and who wonder in our darkest hours whether all the promises of God are true, this is wonderful news indeed. In Revelation, Christ receives a scroll from the hand of his Father and is even now slowly and methodically breaking seven seals. And as he does, as Jesus moves history to its appointment with destiny, the entire earth convulses. But as Paul reminds us in Romans 8, the convulsing of the earth is not the death rattle. It's rather the birth pains. What is about to give birth is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. All of history will reach his goal and God will be all in all. Fear not, child of God. Jesus alone is worthy to bring history to its appointed hour. John, I couldn't help but think when you were talking, this is why we study the book of Revelation. This is why so many people need to understand what the book says. It reveals God's plan for us. Yeah, and it's so important for us to to kind of get that because it, it helps us also to find our place in history. And by that, I don't mean that we know exactly how far we are now from the second coming of Jesus. That's That's not what I'm saying. I think what I'm trying to point out is that Jesus is now breaking these seals. In other words, the time is marching forward to the time when a scroll is opened and God's plans are fulfilled. That is, all of history and our lives are moving towards a pointed hour with destiny. And until we grasp that, we don't grasp our place in it. I mean, I think about what that must have meant to the seven churches who heard that. I mean, they're facing the imperial might of Rome, and they're thinking, wow, is this all going to end badly for us? And Revelation tells us, no, it's not going to end badly. It's going to end exceedingly well. The kingdom of God is about to break out onto our, you know, into our experience. And so all that's happening now is that seals are being broken. So let's remember that when we face our dark hours as well. What a great word of encouragement for all of God's people. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Are you interested in becoming an integral part of the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team? Well, we have an opening for an audio production coordinator. This position takes primary responsibility for audio production, editing, distribution, and administration of all of our ministry audio programs. If you're looking for a career opportunity and have a heart for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt, consider sending in your resume today. And can we ask our listening audience to pray for this position and the entire ministry team that works tirelessly to ensure all of our resources and programs are made available every day. For more information about this position, visit backtothebible.ca and click on careers or send in your resume for the position of Audio Production Manager at hr at backtothebible.ca.
www.cnews.org.